You're listening to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast, episode 6, hosted by me, Robert Plotkin. Today I'm going to be speaking with Neil Seligman, who is the founder of The Conscious Professional, the author of 100 Mindfulness Meditations, and one of the UK's leading experts on corporate mindfulness, well-being, and professional resilience. Neil has worked for more than half of the top 100 law firms in the UK and has trained thousands of lawyers, consultants, doctors, and other professionals in mindfulness. We're extremely pleased to welcome Neil Seligman to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Hi, Neil, and welcome to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Hi there. Thanks very much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. And to get started, since the name of your organization is The Conscious Professional, I'd like to start by talking to you about the particular problems and challenges that professionals face in connection with their use of technology. And you know that both of us are lawyers, interestingly enough, so we're both very familiar personally with the kinds of stresses and anxieties faced by people in the legal profession, uh, but I'm sure that what you have to say and the work that you do is relevant to all professionals. Uh, maybe you could get started by telling me what motivated you to start The Conscious Professional and also what your mission and, and goals are. Yeah, so um, The Conscious Professional really came out of my mindfulness practice in that I um, I felt that it was time that I started to teach mindfulness. And because the fact I'd come out of an um, eight-year legal career as a barrister, um, it felt important to bring the skills of mindfulness to professionals. Um, and so that's, that's where I started. Um, and the, the aim really is, I mean, in terms of vision, it's kind of looking towards enlightened executives in conscious businesses. And our mission is kind of to step towards that kind of conscious future one step at a time. Great. I want to pick up on that. I wonder if I can step back for a second. I'm curious about what brought you to mindfulness, whether this was something you were practicing before uh, your legal profession started, maybe whether you picked it up as a result of issues you were facing as a lawyer. Can you speak a little bit to your personal experience in that way? Um, absolutely. I mean, the, the reason... Uh, I got into mindfulness really, I mean, I think we have to remember as well that back, back then, and this is about 20, maybe more than 20 years ago, we weren't really talking about meditation and meditative practices as, as mindfulness. Um, so my first introduction with, I suppose, anything, uh, looking towards the interiority of a human being actually came through healing. Um, and, um, as a teenager, um, so back in, this is probably 1998, um, I was introduced to Reiki, uh, which is a form of energy healing. Um, and it was through learning Reiki and the three different degrees of Reiki that I started to be introduced to meditative techniques, um, which then kind of very much fascinated me um, from that point on. So, so yeah, that sort of came first, then the legal career. 
And then later came the weaving of, I guess, the two worlds together of both this kind of this interest in human potential and the the interior side of the human being, but also this drive for professional excellence, which is what I still like to support um, in the businesses and with the individuals that I work with. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? How How is it that you link mindfulness to professional excellence and perhaps achievement or effectiveness in the professional world? What's the relationship and how do you bring those two together in the work that you do? Sure. I mean, I talk about mindfulness as a way of developing a craft of consciousness, um, which means being able to inhabit the inner worlds of thought, emotion, mindset, values, attention, intention, uh, focus, concentration, awareness, um, as being a little bit of a missing link um, with, with many professionals in that we get so much support for expressing ourselves in the exterior reality of our world, whether it's you know, getting great at um, putting forward oral legal arguments or uh, writing um, the most fantastic letter or contract or email or you know, putting together um, whatever it is that we're working on. There's a lot of support for that stuff. But the kind of internal environment which we all carry around with us from meeting to meeting, um, that piece is, I think, overlooked. And I think, therefore, if we could bring the same level of excellence to navigating that as we do to navigating our external world in our, in our professional life, um, then both should be increased in terms of um, capacity, our ability to do it with excellence. So we should express greater excellence externally when we have um, learned to grow the capacity for inner awareness um, and developing that craft of consciousness. Let me play devil's advocate for a minute because I can hear the voices of many lawyers I know saying, uh, what do I need the inner awareness for? Why shouldn't I just be focused on what you call the external? Focus on skills at writing better briefs or doing the work I need to do for clients more effectively. I should just focus on that. Uh, why focus on the inner in terms of trying to achieve professional excellence? Yeah, and um, I... I do get that. Um, the, the reason I would say is the internal world and navigating it with um, greater competence is the key to emotional intelligence. Now, when you're in a cohort of people um, who are already very intelligent at the level of IQ, because in a lot of professions like law, there's a boundary which you have to leap over with your scores um, with the universities you went to, you know, all of that, you have to prove yourself at a very high level of IQ to even gain entry. But once you've gained entry into the profession, if we're looking at who progresses, who turns into leadership, the managers, the, you know, the visionaries that move forward, it's really the emotional intelligence competencies um, that really are the differentiators. And so if you're only paying attention to your kind of external capacity for expressing excellence, then maybe you will be a fantastic technician, 
at the law or whatever it is that you're going to do. Um, but it's unlikely unless, you know, it might be just naturally brilliant on the emotional intelligence spectrum as well. Um, but most people have to develop that aspect um, through certain elements of practice or work, or whatever. Um, so, you know, it's, well, what are you looking for in your career? And if it is just technical excellence, then that's perfect and fine. But if you're looking for advancement in kind of different ways through the leadership and so on, um, then I would say that the kind of inner world is is really important, not to mention for yourself, you know, to to gain these capacities to um, sit more peacefully with your thinking, to be able to turn off um, when you when you would like to, um, to manage your emotions well. Um, all of these things, in my view, have an impact on your general well-being. Um, and, you know, if we extrapolate that out, I think on your kind of physical health as well as your mental health, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's all kind of holistically linked in, I would say. So, um, so yes, it depends on, well, what's your focus? And obviously, I don't, it's not like I'm prescribing mindfulness for everyone. I, I like to explain to people what it is, what it's not, what it might be able to do for people. And if they feel curious, um, then that should lead them on. You know, it's kind of that aspect. I'm very curious about um, the two sides you mentioned. Uh, the first was that emotional intelligence and developing it can help people uh, become more successful as a professional. Uh, and the other side being that just internally for the person, it's beneficial. I wonder if you could speak to the first. I don't know if there's any examples you could give uh, of how emotional intelligence actually helps people perhaps uh, uh, move into leadership positions or excel in other ways beyond what you just called being a, a, a excellent technician. Yeah, um, I've got quite a lot of uh, data and statistics and things on this, but not to my fingertips. <laughs> um, it's part of, uh, part of a, a course that I sometimes teach, which is a mindful guide to emotional intelligence. Um, it, I, I'll maybe get some of these statistics wrong, but there's loads of examples in the literature um, about how uh, emotional intelligent competencies, when they're focused on, that they translate into, if you do it with salespeople, into higher sales. Um, if you do it with a certain cohort, they're much more likely to move into leadership roles. Um, there's an element around, um, there was a big study, I think it was done by IBM, into um, the sort of C-suite leaders, um, and it was found that the EQ competencies uh, were far more important than the IQ competencies uh, in terms of who was successful, so who was able to influence, to inspire, to motivate, to relate, to manage, to, you know, all of that kind of visionary stuff, which is so important in a leadership uh, role. Um, so, so yeah, so there's, there's definitely a lot of data behind it. Um, I'm afraid I haven't got all of that in front of me right now. That's fine. That's fine. We can certainly point people to uh, any other research that you have uh, in the notes outside of the podcast. Internally, I think uh, everyone in the legal profession and other professions is aware of the stress that we feel, resultant anxiety, uh, the the statistics on things like depression and alcohol and drug abuse, 
uh, in the legal profession are really concerning and have been for a long time. Uh, I wonder if you can speak to to the internal benefits of mindfulness for professionals, uh, perhaps specifically in relation to some of those problems that are very widespread. Yeah. Um, so I suppose at its at its simplest, mindfulness is kind of tuning us away from our cognitions, the thinking mind. We're still, you know, retaining an awareness of that, but we're also we're sort of dropping down into into the body and into the anchors um, to the present moment, which immediately starts to bring on the kind of self-soothing aspect um, of our physiology. Now, a lot of what's happening um, within a sort of day-to-day experience in the professional world is that it's very anxiety-inducing. Um, and I think we, we each develop a way of coping with that. Um, so you don't often see on the surface with professionals that they're struggling. The story I hear much more frequently is that it looks like everything's okay. But at a certain point, uh, people suddenly go off and they're, they're off out for stress or um, they've taken a, a sabbatical that wasn't planned or something has happened. And uh, it turns out that it was related to something to do with stress or anxiety or depression or burnout or you know, one of these things that we hear a lot about. Um, so we're quite good at kind of showing the world that everything's fine, even when it's not. And I think mindfulness gives us this capacity to actually line those two things up. We do want to still seem in control. We want to seem like we are responding, not reacting. We want to be able to be the trusted advisor for our clients. But we also want our internal experience of expressing those things externally We want our internal experience to feel peaceful and tranquil. Um, It doesn't have to feel internally uh, frenetic uh, and anxious, even when there's a lot of responsibility or a lot riding on what we're doing. Um, And it's really sort of joining those two things up. And that's what I'm talking about when I'm saying, let's bring excellence to this internal world and see what the outcomes of that are. Um, I'm saying... Let's actually um, navigate what we find within with the aim of being able to self-regulate more efficiently um, and, and not live and act from a kind of frenzy or anxious state. Um, and that's, that's a big piece for, it's a big piece for me. Um, certainly when I was, um, I mean, I was uh, only practicing for eight years, but I didn't even realize how stressed I had become um, in that eight years. Um, When I stopped practicing, it was only then that I realized that I had these kind of hangovers of adrenalized reactions to uh, even mundane tasks where I just got into the habit of kind of living in this kind of anxiety mode and bring it into lots of different areas of my life. My partner at the time used to call it my manic list energy. <laughs> you know, I, I finished working. I was you know, working on other things, but I wasn't practicing anymore. But I would be expressing this manic list energy and doing the laundry. 
and and things like that. So it really kind of that started to wake me up to okay, well, what's happening here, and is it is this actually the most effective state that I could be in for this task? Yeah, that's great. It makes it makes a lot of sense to me, and I think I, I'm thinking of as I said before, lawyers who I know who might be somewhat skeptical of of this because of um, the fact that the external demands on them are significant and to a, to a large extent outside of their control. And I could see people saying, I can't change those external factors, what the client needs, what my firm or company demands of me. I need to be responsible. I need to act effectively and professionally. And it sounds like you're saying that is all true, um, but that there is something you can do internally about how you respond to this. Uh, I, I can imagine it being appealing to people who might be skeptical of an approach which denies the external reality or tries to ask people to change that when it might be difficult or impossible to change the external part while they're in it. Yeah, I think the reason why we find this difficult to even imagine as a sort of plausible possibility um, is that we don't have very many role models of people who are operating at the highest levels of function, but also the highest levels of peacefulness. So we often think of the people, you know, our, our peers and other professionals that when they're, you know, they're working at their peak, often the energy that surrounds that is quite tight. Uh, it's quite stressed and it's sort of wound up. Now, if you were to look at it from a martial arts point of view, um, if you think about the most, uh, most amazing martial artists that you can imagine, they don't look stressed Mm-hmm. operating at that level. In fact, they need to be more centered, more grounded, more peaceful. That's where that sort of whole idea of sort of all seeing, all knowing, where you can almost feel the feel the attack coming before it's even been in the mind of your attacker. It's that kind of <laughs> that kind of idea yes. that comes from a deeply, deeply practiced peacefulness. And so I think there's this kind of this whole sort of um structure above where we've placed our kind of peak of high performance, where actually if we move into high levels of peacefulness, then the level of excellence that we're able to express will be increased. Stands to reason. I think there's this fear that, oh no, if we sort of get in touch with this internal world, then it will all just turn to blubber and we won't care and be <laughs> sort of soft and whooshy and all the rest of it. And I don't think that's where we're going, but I appreciate that it's sometimes difficult to to see what that might look like and why we might want to go there. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about cultural values that people have adopted or beliefs about things like softness. Softness means weak or softness means ineffective. Yeah. Uh, that's a belief, not necessarily a fact, and it's not shared in all all cultures. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about um, the 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 role of the work you do with individuals versus organizations, and and what is the role to be played by um, helping individuals improve themselves and working with organizations on perhaps changing their culture or practices. How does that play out in the work that you do? 
So I suppose, I mean, I enjoy both, both aspects of the work that I do. So there's the group work and then the individual work. And often with the group work, it's a, um, you know, an, an interaction which lasts maybe you know, an hour or three hours or occasionally a whole day where you're going into training skills and we're kind of learning together. So it's kind of experiential workshopping, teaching people, um, whether it's skills around uh, resilience or mindfulness itself, um, things like digital well-being, emotional intelligence we touched on as well. Um, so it's kind of building self-awareness, allowing people to break the ice on talking about these things in the workplace is often quite important um, just to kind of be standing there and saying, these are important things for us to be discussing because and kind of modeling why kind of there is this link uh, between well-being and the health of uh, the organization generally in terms of what it's able to express. Um, and then the work that I do one-to-one -one with people um, is more of a coaching interaction. Um, I do sometimes do kind of private mindfulness tuition, um, but often the work that I'm doing, it's, I call it breakthrough coaching. So it's, it's often someone who is at a crossroads or is looking to step up in some way and needs some support or clarity in kind of gaining confidence in, in what's next. And so, um, yeah, it's kind of a coaching relationship where that unfolds. I also bring, because of my, my um, history as a, as a healer, that sometimes comes in as well in terms of kind of an intuitive interaction, either either with their physicality generally or just kind of intuitive coaching, um, depending on what they're going through. And by, by that, do you mean giving them ways to help do self-healing? Um, so, I mean, as a, as a Reiki master, I sometimes will do energy work mm -hmm. with a client. So that's kind of um, hands-on or hands-off uh, working with the energy body. body. Um, so talk therapy works predominantly on the level of uh, our minds. Um, but sometimes as my, my past has sort of brought me through this healing modality. Sometimes there's kind of balancing that can be done um, of the physical body as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I wonder if we can now shift a little bit and talk specifically about the the topic of the technology for mindfulness podcast, which is the role of technology in all of this as a, perhaps a contributing factor. Uh, in one of your talks, uh, you mentioned some statistics that were really shocking. I mean, just mention a few of them. I know you have many more that 81% of office workers stop breathing when they check their email. Um, professionals might use their smartphone in one way or another 15 to 17 hours a day, which I found shocking and that we should really only be awake for about 16 hours a day. That one's screens, so it's not just the phone. Screens, I see, all screens. Yeah, one of the things that I do in, in a session on digital well-being is to ask people how many hours per day on average they spend looking at a screen. Um, and yeah, particularly in the, the youngest cohorts that I teach, so often their trainee level, um, yeah, it's kind of 15 to 17 are the numbers that they come up with. That's not a scientific piece of research. That's just, uh, anecdotal. 
but still shocking none, nonetheless. Yeah. Um, and that, and I, this may have been a statistic that you found uh, that the average smartphone user checks their phone, turns to it about 220 times a day. Yeah, I actually came across that a couple of years ago, so I wouldn't be surprised if it was increased by now. I haven't seen uh, more recent research on that, but there probably is, is some somewhere. Um, but yeah, that was a few years ago. They, they um, did some research which showed 221 times a day was the average smartphone user checking it. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been practicing law for about 20 years. So interestingly, when I started, um, certainly the internet and the web were around and so was email, but no smartphones and uh, the use of all of this was much lighter. Um, and I remember certainly the expectation from the client wasn't th wasn't there like there is now for instant responses to everything. Clients didn't expect you to... Uh, necessarily be available 24 hours a day to respond to emails, phone, or texts 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And uh, that's certainly all changed. And I remember a more senior attorney telling me about an attorney he knew in the 50s who still at that point did not have a telephone at his desk, um, would only meet with clients in person at scheduled meetings and would only give advice after the meeting was over in a written letter, usually about a week later, after having given everything due consideration. Uh, just to think how far we've come in, in about a half a century. That sort of lifestyle sounds kind of nice. It does, it does sound nice. Pretty far away, right? Very far away. I mean, of course, his thinking was, he, this is what was necessary for him to do to give the kind of careful consideration of the client's needs that he needed to do to give effective legal counsel. And as you know now, I mean, a client might uh, text uh, an attorney and expect an immediate response and advice on the spot yeah. at any time, any day of the week, any day of the year. Uh, so I wonder if you can tell me a little bit about uh, how you you address specifically the role that technology plays in the lives of professionals and, and how people can bring mindfulness to bear on that. Yeah, so um, the issue is, I suppose, that the, the technology isn't going away. Um, the capability has exponentially increased our ability to work anywhere, anytime. Um, and, and that has just sort of crept in as, well, this has been the, the change that has just kind of come through technology, but I'm not necessarily sure whether anyone actively chose it um, and said, right, we're shifting to a 24-hour service uh, with a response time of five minutes or whatever it is that, that might be expected. Um, so it, it's kind of crept up on us, I think, because the, you know, the technologies are, are new. So um, I think it, it would be silly for us to say that we have mastered these technologies and that we have got to the pinnacle of our interaction with technology. I think we're pretty far away from that, in fact. Um, the role of dopamine, I think, is really key here in terms of 
any interaction with technology where it's presenting you with something that is kind of new or potentially uh, exciting or different in your world, um, you get this release of dopamine in the brain and it kind of feels good. Mm -hmm. The problem with that is that kind of sucks us into these behaviors as well because we kind of like being we like being sent new things in a kind of weird way. Um, so there's the part of ourselves that is physiologically drawn into wanting to be on top of all of that. Um, now, you might also notice there's also a part of you that would like to turn off or to kind of dial down our interaction with things like work and all the rest of it. Because if we're exposed constantly to dopamine-inducing uh, alerts, whether they be to do with work or to do with the social life or, or anything else, it's exhausting. Um, and it leads to this kind of perpetual, always-on state um, that a lot of professionals uh, in particular, but I think it's pretty, you know, as kind of the mass, masses, everyone really, um, finds it very difficult to to turn off. And people that, you know, were able to maybe remember five, ten years ago going on a holiday and just kind of being on holiday, don't really get that same feeling of being away anymore because they're on the beach with their phone or, you know, they're still doing work emails in between this and that. Um, and the mind doesn't get to kind of dial down into those kind of blue sky thinking states um, and turn off. So the boundaries have basically evaporated between um, our lives and our work. And the technology is not going to give us the boundaries back again. <laughs> mm. I don't think that's the way it's going to go. We're going to have to reclaim them for ourselves. Um, so, so yeah, that's the challenge, I think. It's about being intentional um, about how we interact with our technologies. Um, my own definition for digital well-being is that it's characterized by behavioral awareness leading to intentional engagement with data and connection. Um, so, yeah, we need to obviously be aware of behaviorally what's happening. I think it's really important to be aware of the role of dopamine because that can just suck us in to a lot of lost time um, in terms of the way it's harnessed by um, you know, smartphone app developers and, and technologies to draw our attention in. Um, and then think about, well, what's actually my intention? What, what actually is my intention in this moment? What do I intend to do with it? And how do I schedule my day and my week and my time for work and my time for myself and my time for family or friends or social life or whatever it is that you do? Um, can we be intentional around it and then not distracted away when we don't choose to be by the technologies? I'm wondering, is there, do you have any practical suggestions or exercises or even one that you could share with people now for helping to cultivate that kind of ability to, to, uh, you know, uh, not be so sucked in, let's say, at least outside of work hours. Yeah. So, I mean, there are, there's a kind of um, an intention setting exercise where you, you start choosing your digital boundaries um, by figuring out 
things like what time you're going to check your phone first thing in the morning, what time is going to be your last check, Um, trying to give yourself perhaps a screen-free wake-up and a screen-free chill-down. That that changed my life quite considerably when I learned about about this at a conference uh, four or five years ago where I had started sleeping next to my smartphone um, and as a result was basically checking my phone right up until closing my eyes to go to sleep and waking up with it in my face in the morning. Um, Kind of non-intentionally, just kind of crept into the bedroom and then it started living there and then those behaviors started becoming how I went to bed and how I got up. Um, And then bringing some awareness, I think, you actually is that how I choose to um, kind of rest my my physicality my awareness just before sleep and is that how i want to kind of greet the world with my first kind of rays of consciousness in the morning as i'm reintegrating with my reality (laughs) um and it turned out that wasn't my intention um and and so i i created some space around that a boundary around that which physically meant that um the phone and anything with a wi-fi signal was no longer welcome in my bedroom. So it became a Wi-Fi free zone um, or digital free zone, whatever you want to call it. And um, that was really profound in terms of my quality of sleep increased, um, the type of uh, presence that I had uh, upon waking, um, the ability to kind of engage in the day before my consciousness splintered into 20 million different directions. Um, You know, when you're, check your phone in the morning. It's kind of, you're straight into work, you're straight into your Facebook friends. What are they doing? Instagram, what's happened? You know, the news, it's like, uh, literally your brain is literally splintering your consciousness, just diverting around the known universe. Um, and it's, that's kind of exhausting already. And you've just opened your eyes. Um, so yeah, there's, there's that need for, okay, well noticing the behaviors and then thinking to yourself, do I choose this? Is this my intention? Uh, and if not, then creating some some boundaries around it, even if it's just, you know, I'm going to give myself the first 20 minutes of the day uh, to get up, have a shower, make breakfast, but that just to be me <laughs> uh, before I look at my phone. And maybe that's long enough for some people. Maybe it's not for others. I don't know. But it's kind of that. So it has to be very much led by each person's individual intention and they have to they have to also want to do that like has to um has to feel like a good idea like this is not something which yeah i in any sense prescribe people i try and give them the tools and the knowledge about what's what's going on and what's happening and then let them decide and choose well what's right for me what works for my you know my work requirements and caretaking requirements and anything else that you know your roles you play that's great it's great uh and one thing that's interesting to me about that example is it is um the 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 no uh, screens in the bedroom example it's not necessarily a meditation practice uh per se uh and yet it still ex- can be extremely helpful it's stepping back as you said noticing what you want and need and setting an intention and acting on it, uh, which might in the process of doing that uh, involve some meditation, but may or may not uh, actually be meditative. Uh, 
And as you said, consciously recreating a boundary that perhaps we've let be eroded unconsciously by, by the way technology has worked its way into our lives. I mean, a while ago, I remember experimenting with uh, setting boundaries on checking email during the workday and noticing that I had a fear that going an hour without checking an email would result in some kind of disaster and right. uh, finding that even for a sh if I set it for a short time, a half an hour not to check email and then have the experience of it not being a disaster uh, made it easier for me to increase those blocks of time. Right. And um, it, it was very rare that, that even anything negative happened, much less a disaster. Usually there was no consequence at all to not checking email for several hours, uh, which was quite surprising to me because my fear was that the earth would come crumbling down if I wasn't constantly looking at new emails. Yeah. And I think that, that um, the awareness of the fear is, is an important piece to be in contact with. Because this is kind of the, the fear state is kind of this is not the ideal state for us to be living in when we're trying to do work at the highest level or any level. Um, and so if we can get in touch with that and then in very small ways, learn safe ways to let go of the fear and find behaviors which are more supportive of a fear free experience of our internal environment then this is to me that that is mindfulness because it, it requires some you know it sounds very simple but it requires some quite deep awareness um to actually slow down enough to feel those things um and to actually be present with well actually what's true for me um and and what what serves me in this moment and is that okay with my other uh, responsibilities and roles and so on and so you know that's that's not something to kind of undermine it's like oh everyone's nuts it's like no these these are important commitments that we've, we've made to our clients to our um you know the corporation you might work for or yourself if you work for yourself there are things at stake um but thinking well can we sense into this kind of fear and in small ways learn to navigate ourselves away from the fear, but still retain our, our best, giving of our best. That's great. Um, I wonder if we can turn to another topic uh, that you've mentioned to me, which was that you're working now on um, work specifically related to mindfulness and challenges faced by men. Uh, I wonder if you can tell me a little bit, I know the work is preliminary, but one, what motivated you to go into this direction in addition to what you're doing already, and perhaps what you're finding and what you hope to be able to achieve? Yeah, I think um, my motivation is that it seems like um, a big piece for all individuals. When people come into learning about mindfulness and it really resonates with them, it tends to make a pretty, pretty big difference in their lives, like a profound difference. And it starts to impact on lots of different areas. Um, 
And it also seems to be true that more women find it easier to take that first step into learning about mindfulness or finding out more about it, whereas men find it more difficult. Um, and I think that's that's a shame because um, it's something that just across the board we can all really get a lot out of. And for a lot of guys that are very much into uh, expressing excellence and strength and presence and uh, powerfulness and you know all these types of things, um, mindfulness is a really important foundation uh, for those aspects. And so I'd like to like to kind of change the language a little bit around how mindfulness is seen so that it becomes a bit more palatable to men. And it's, the work is not just for men, um, but for it to have more of a masculine appeal is the aim. Um, so I think it will probably turn into a book and maybe a, a course. I haven't quite um, really found that out yet. Um, but it's this idea that um, there's a lot in it uh, in mindfulness for men. And the way in which it's currently formulated is not always appealing to guys. Um, and I think it's because uh, part of the way that mindfulness has come through to the kind of modern uh, consciousness and you know, how, we, how we look at it is in alliance with things like uh, clinicians and stress and anxiety and mental health issues. Um, and guys don't typically find it so easy to turn towards those aspects and say, oh, I really want to strengthen my mental health or deal with, you know, my vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. You're socialized to be, you know, uh, to show strength and to hide those weaknesses. So it's more difficult. Um, and therefore I want to make mindfulness something which isn't just about that. It's about increasing your strength, your performance, your expression of excellence um, and harnessing things which are more aspirational. Um, and the you know, the other aspects which um, are beneficial for our mental health can be part of it as well, but just not the kind of primary uh, aspect. Um, it's still a very very much just kind of thoughtful stage at the moment in terms of where that project's going, but um, that's kind of my current thinking around it. That's fantastic. That's really great, and thanks for sharing that. Uh, my own experience being a man and with men. Um, if I can make a general statement, is to agree with you. Many men would uh, don't like to think about aspects of themselves as being weak, uh, uh, or they perhaps are not as open to looking at the internal. Uh, even the phrase you used before, like emotional intelligence, is something that many men wouldn't it wouldn't appeal to many men, or they might not think is something they could benefit from or need or might even have a thought or a fear that if they develop emotional intelligence, it will somehow make them less effective. It will detract from the traits of theirs which have helped them to succeed. Uh, I, I can certainly see all of that. Um, yeah. And it sounds to me like you're talking about not really changing mindfulness or what it is, uh, but really... Uh, tell me if I'm wrong, conveying it in a way that meets m many men, perhaps more where they are already and appeals to who they are and how they see themselves in the world. Exactly. I think the way in which we access these modalities is, is important. Um, and if the modality 
which is known to be of benefit across the board, is not reaching a certain um, you know part of the population, then yeah, it, it could easily be around how it's being presented and the language around it. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm keen to kind of play with and see where that takes me. Fantastic. Well, I'm really curious to stay on top of your work on that and to, um, if it does turn into a book or a course to learn more about that and we'll let everyone know about it through technology for mindfulness. Great. Thank you. You're welcome. So thanks so much, Neil, for being with us today on the technology for mindfulness podcast. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us for this Technology for Mindfulness podcast with me, Robert Plotkin, and today's guest, Neil Seligman, the founder of The Conscious Professional. Find out more about Neil and his work at theconsciousprofessional.com. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and share the episode with your friends. Those and all other links are in the show notes. And check out our blog at technologyformindfulness.com for information and tips about science, technology, and mindfulness. I'm Robert Plotkin, and I'll join you next time on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Thank you.